Welcome to Elixir Mix, your weekly Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson. On, and today we are joined with a special guest, uh, Fred Hibbert. Fred, could you please pronounce your name correctly this time? It's good. It's Fred Hibbert, uh, but I do accept the English pronunciation as well. It's not a problem. All right. And, and why don't you tell us a little bit about like, uh, where you're from and kind of what, you're, what you've been up to? Uh, I'm from Quebec, Canada, and I've been based here uh, my entire life. Uh, before being a special guest today, uh, are, are all your guests special or do you have like ordinary guests or something? Well, we have our ordinary panelists, uh, but today right, it's just yeah. me and you. All right. Uh, no, and uh, essentially uh, what I'm up to is uh, I finished writing property-based testing with uh, proper Erlang and Elixir. Uh, a few months ago, and now I'm just kind of coasting on that and going to a few conferences and talking about it and writing a bunch of blog posts um, and taking it a bit slowly at that point uh, before, I don't know, jumping back into bigger side projects and stuff like that again. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. That's awesome. I want to come back. We'll come back to that, that uh, new book that you've just released. I want to give some context to our listeners um, yep. that may not be aware that you've written two other books, at least that I'm aware of. Um, one of them, the first one is Learn You Some Erlang for Great Good. And I love that. It's a fun title and it's a freely available online. You can also go and purchase it like a print copy. Uh, but I would love to hear a little bit about, uh, I believe I'm aware of a little bit of the, the background about how this was created, uh, but is there anything you could share about where that book came from? Oh, that, that, that's a long while ago. I think I started working on it on two, in 2009. Uh, back then I was working on a dating site in PHP. That was my first job out of college. And uh, the way that it went is that at some point in there, I got into a research and development group and someone told me that they needed a chat system. Facebook had just launched their first uh, chat system that at this point was still in Erlang before they rewrote the entire thing in C++ and then bought WhatsApp, which does Erlang. Uh, but back then, it was still Erlang. And um, he threw the 1996 OTP Erlang book on my desk. Um, it, it's now available in reprint. Back then, I think it was just like out of print entirely. And I started learning the language that way. And after a couple of months, I really, really enjoyed that. And not necessarily knowing a whole lot about development outside of websites and everything, I decided to write, uh, to write notes about what I was learning in the language. And eventually, that just turned into an online book and tutorial and everything like that. And I published it chapter by chapter until No Starch Press approached me and uh, had me turn it into an actual paper book. Nice. 
Well, uh, one of the things I want to make sure our audience understands is like it's the title is "Learn You Some Erlang," right? And right. But, but there, like I've I've benefited a great deal from this book, just and the resources, uh, because just the it's it's not code heavy, at least from my experience. A lot of it is just explaining things, and here's some little tips, and you know, there's a lot of great insight, and that is you know exactly the same for Elixir as it is for Erlang. So I'm I'm really glad you wrote it and and shared it. So that was a benefit for everyone. Yeah, that's good to hear. I mean, it, it's been a huge benefit for me from the point of view that it gave me a name in the community and then things started rolling from that point on. So it was definitely worth it for me as well. So then your second book, uh, Stuff Goes Bad, Erlang and Anger. Yeah. Another awesome title. So uh, Yeah, that one was written while I was uh, working at Heroku and we had a small team with um, very heavy pager burden and operations. And at some point, I wanted to document the procedures and the kind of investigation that we would do uh, to fix things. And back then, which I don't even remember the year, it's probably 2015 or 2016, uh, a lot of folks essentially had their own you know, documents full of little bits of code that they could copy paste into the shell to debug things live in production and everything. And you would ask experienced Erlang users like where they would put their stuff or what did they have to debug everything? And everyone had that small secret document with their little code in there. Um, and what I tried to do uh, initially for that book was to grab all of these snippets from everyone that could just be copy pasted uh, into shells and turn them really into a kind of little manual and what the snippets did and everything like that. Um, that turned out to be a bit, of an, an, a bit of an annoyance to just copy paste all the time. And so eventually I wrote the recon library along with the book. Uh, and that became the kind of little toolbox of uh, production-grade debugging scripts and little things that let you introspect into an airline virtual machine. And then the book came as a kind of manual that fits the tool from that point of view. So one of the things that I think is fun that I've noticed in your books and in your online pre your presentations and is this fun, whimsical kind of illustration style that you have. And I'd love to hear a little bit about that and just kind of where that came from and, you know, how, how you go about uh, deciding, yeah, this is, this is an appropriate thing. Draw a little guy with octopus arms, you know? Uh, that's a bit of a weird one because it's part of it. I mean, it started as laziness. Like I'm not good enough to actually make good art. And so you take something kind of crappy, but make it look like it has enough style to be a thing. And then people seem to just buy into that. Uh, but it turned out to be a lot more work than I thought. And so, yes, Learning Some Erlang had a lot of drawings, uh, but I'm not doing it again for the other books because it's just too time-consuming and I'm a different place in my life than it used to be back then. Some illustrations from time to time are still worth it, but frankly, something like, like Learning Some Erlang, I could spend uh, a month part-time of a chapter, and it could be like one week to two weeks to figure out uh, the examples I wanted to show one week to two weeks to figure out the um, actual writing of the page. And then just the rest was drawing and finding everything I wanted to do, uh, do them on paper, scan them, trace them, uh, redraw them and everything like that. And it just turned out to be a huge, huge burden of a time consuming thing. And, you know, personally, I don't like the drawing that much because I know that they're done hastily and they're not very good or they're not as good drawings as I'd like to be able to do. Uh, and I think everyone else likes them more than I do <laughs> at that point. Well, yeah, I've enjoyed them. 
but yeah, just, it, it helps just to, you know, have some illustration, but I also like that you took the approach of saying, you know, I don't have to have some graphic designer come in and do this professionally. I can still put out content that's valuable. I, and, I didn't have the money for that at first yeah. anyway. Uh, and you know, part of it in learning some rolling is just like, I would have a wall of text. And I was just like, this is not looking good. I'm just going to put something in there to give people a break. And so, uh, the thing I try to do with time is to write text that I feel does not need to have these things to give people a, a break in terms of becoming a better writer. Mm -hmm. And that might work, that might not work. Um, but you know, it feels kind of odd if you go and say like, without the drawings, it's not a good book. That's not great because the drawings have nothing to do with the content. So uh, <laughs> I, I try to be careful about that. Like I understand people enjoy them, but I try really hard to make something that is enjoyable even without the drawings, essentially. Like they should be, uh, you know, they should be a garnish. They shouldn't be the essential spice of the thing, in my opinion. Right. That makes sense. And so that brings us to your newest book, the property-based testing with Prop Er, Erlang, and Elixir. Yes. And, and so this one, I would be really curious because this, you know, the other ones are, you know, as you're learning Erlang, you're kind of writing down the lessons. And then as you're dealing with it in production, that's Erlang and Anger. So where is this one coming from? Uh, essentially, I've been doing property-based testing for, I don't know, seven or eight years. And for the longest while, I only knew how to really deal with stateless properties. And the stateful ones were still kind of confusing. I touched them, but not really. And at some point, uh, I decided to say, I'm just going to go dive in and figure out how they work. And once again, I wanted to take a bunch of notes to remember. And uh, that turned into content for a text. Another thing I wanted to do initially was to just write a bunch of blog posts. Uh, about property-based testing because I felt that blog posts are, you know, a good format. You publish one of them from time to time. You're not committed to doing a full book and everything. Uh, but very rapidly, uh, as I was planning out, you know, a series of blog posts or something, it just turned out that uh, you have to build on a lot of content that is not fully independent from each other to go ahead. And, and that just turns to work much, much better as a kind of book where I have a directing line and a, a way to go about it. Mm. Um, and the final one is just that I wanted to use property-based testing, you know, at work and in open source projects and that kind of stuff. Um, but if you're the only person on the team who understands it, uh, you shouldn't be putting it in there, right? Because it's unmaintainable. It has a bus factor of one. It's not a healthy thing. So part of the book is teach it to everyone. So then I can use it. And that's a very, very affordable way to use property-based testing because that's at least two years or we have close to two years to write a book like that and get it published. Wow. So, so yeah, that... I do believe in the tech. Yeah. And that is an interesting idea. It's like, I want to use this more. So I need to kind of make sure everyone else knows how to do this so I can bring it into projects. That's great. Right. I mean, to some extent, it's just like if I were to teach coworkers that stuff and I had uh, okay for that, you know, I would need to write material anyway, show it to them, give exercises, that kind of stuff. So you might as well do it in a book that is openly available. That book is also available, has an older copy available for free on propertesting.com. And um, essentially, it's the same approach as Learning Summer Line from that point of view. It's going to be, I'm going to take all my notes and the stuff I would tell one person, I'm going to tell it to everyone at once. And then, you know, I don't have to teach everybody individually they can teach each other at that point or the book can be used as an aid for that if they already have some knowledge and just need to uh, go to the next level with it. So it's, it's a kind of 
like it's a lot of work, but it's a kind of laziness at the same time. <laughs> well, it sounds like you're pretty passionate about property-based testing then. Um, I wonder if you could give uh, like some of our listeners who might not understand what that is, kind of give them an overview of why this is, what it is and why it's important. Right. So the early thing that's super interesting that everyone that starts with property-based testing compared to standard testing, which uh, property-based testing people like to refer to as example-based testing, is that you need to come up in regular testing with a bunch of examples that demonstrate that your program works the way you think it, 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 it should be working, right? So if you're sorting a list, you're going to have a bunch of lists with integers that are sorted uh, on one side and then randomized on the other. And then you make sure that when you randomize a number, you get the sorted ones. And that's your example. Property-based testing, the little sales pitch tells you that you don't have to think about any of that and the framework generates the examples for you. In practice, property-based testing is a lot more work because you have to figure out, uh, you know, the underlying principles that uh, represent your code or that, that, that the under, you have to think about the underlying principles uh, behind your implementation of your system and your code. And that turns out to be a lot more work because most of what we do is kind of, uh, you know, only partially specified and it's easy to take a bunch of shortcuts and leave these undefined areas a bit everywhere uh, in, in a product. So property-based testing requires you to think a lot harder. And for me, the, the actual selling point is not just on you know, having shorter tests that do more iterations and more examples for you. It's about uh, preventing failures of imagination, by which I mean there are a bunch of counterexamples and uh, failing test cases that I could not have thought of on my own that property-based testing is going to find for me. Because I see or think of, let's say, I don't know, 10 examples, and I, tr I figure out, oh, that's the principle behind what I want to do. But there are emergent behaviors and properties in the code that I write uh, that the framework is able to show. You thought that this was always true, but it's only true in some context. If you pass a list or a data structure with this shape, it starts to fail. So you have to rethink everything you do and a lot of what happens uh, with property-based testing on a larger level at that point is that it ends up guiding the implementation because the costliest errors that I do in system design are not related to uh, bad types or typoing stuff or, uh, you know, misusing a library. A lot of them have to do with not understanding the fundamentals of the problem I'm trying to solve and then applying the wrong solution to the problem. And when I use property-based testing like that and it generates uh, broader inputs to what I do and I try to come up with the general rules, there's a lot of cases where I find out that my understanding of the problem space and the system or of my implementation were just not right. And for me, that's the biggest value I can get out of it. I figure you could get the same out of, uh, you know, formal models in TLA plus or something like that. Uh, but I do like having executable tests against the actual implementation with property-based testing. So I know one of the things that your book talks about, that this tool specifically is proper, P-R-O-P-E-R. Um, yep. I, I, I believe there's another uh, property-based testing library. Is that right? I, I mean, there are plenty of them. Uh, at least in airline, there's QuickCheck, which is the commercial version. It has more features than any other out there. Uh, possibly in all of the languages. Uh, I think Hypothesis in Python is a different set of features. Um, then there is Trick also in Erlang that is uh, a bit like proper. Uh, it's a subset of the features again. Has a different licensing and uh, 
less active maintenance. And then there is stream data that is a newest arrival in Elixir. And uh, so far, I think it has possibly more pleasant syntax, but I think in terms of uh, features and generation quality, it's not quite up there yet. Mm -hmm. But I've not played with it a whole lot. So that's the caveat to that. And I assume, like, what, do you just want to speak to, like, if I were to, if I were wanting, uh, wanting to use stream data, for instance, um, yeah. and uh, how would your, would your book still be of benefit to me? Uh, I think it would. Uh, it might be a bit more annoying because you cannot necessarily do all of the examples. And I think at this point, uh, there's an entire section about stateful testing, which stream data cannot really address well. Mm -hmm. I think there's some uh, community work being done that way, but it's not all there yet. Uh, but many of the uh, earlier chapters having to do with, uh, you know, how to think in properties, uh, how to figure out what to measure to make sure your properties have the right qualities, how to apply them in a test-driven development environment and that kind of stuff. Um, how do you interleave your properties with regular unit tests? Uh, that stuff is all in the book and can all be valuable to stream data users. Great. And I know that you're also addressing this book to Erlang and Elixir in, as the community, not just uh, like your two previous books were kind of focused on Erlang. So I know yeah. this, so I'd just love to hear you speak for a moment about like uh, how you're targeting this to Elixir as well. Like you're, that's, that's bridging a big gap perhaps, right? Yeah. I, I mean, one part of it is the intent of doing it, which I think uh, that at this point, the Erlang and Elixir communities have uh, been working in complementary parts of the industry. Like if you're doing Elixir right now, uh, I'm guessing something like 70 to 80% of the people are just uh, using it for web applications, mostly in Phoenix, some of them in Racks and other frameworks. Um, you've got an interesting growing part that uses NERS in IoT applications and stuff like that. And then you've got a much, much smaller sliver uh, of users that use it in other applications, infrastructure, uh, infrastructure, other tools and whatnot. And uh, that's a much, much smaller part. If you look at the Erlang community as it is today, uh, I would say that a whole lot of it is purely infrastructure. Very few websites, a lot of web APIs, that's probably the only place where uh, both communities significantly uh, share, uh, mind share at that point. Um, there is some IoT, but it's rather limited. And so my understanding of the both communities uh, together initially, like six or seven years ago when Elixir was starting, is that uh, this was more or less direct competition. Uh, but now it's that those are mostly complementary. Like if I wanted to do Elixir full-time, I would have to expect to work in entirely different parts of the industry. There is very little direct undercutting between both communities. So... Uh, I think property-based testing can be useful in all kinds of areas. And at that point, uh, yeah, for the book, I wanted to reach the broader community. Like it's not about picking Erlang or Elixir. I think both can work together to provide a better environment than what would be in other programming languages. Like my personal preferences are still obviously in Erlang. Uh, but if I had to pick any other language, then Elixir would probably be second because I still feel at home with all the semantics and everything like that. Mm -hmm. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take-home projects, and that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. 
They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them, and if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. Triplebyte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash elixir. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triplebyte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. Well, that's an interesting perspective you shared on how uh, a lot of the Erlang focus has been more infrastructure. I know with Ericsson and their history, that would certainly be the case. Um, but yeah, that's really cool. And I, so another question I have kind of related to that is you've been in the Erlang community for some time, you know, before Elixir even came on the scene. I'm just curious from your perspective, we've already heard a little bit. I just love to hear a little bit more about um, what that has been like as this, this new kind of upstart language starts coming, coming into the same community. Right. So it's been interesting because when it started, I think the biggest pool of developers that Elixir tried to grab were existing Erlang users, mm. uh, especially, I guess, those more dissatisfied with uh, the language as it was due either to, uh, you know, the extremely, uh, I would say, conservative declarative approach of the language where you don't change a lot of things. If someone wanted to have more macros and a different syntax, Erlang was not extremely receptive to that. Um, and they migrated early onto Elixir. And then Phoenix came on also extremely early. I think at the same time they were developing the language. And so a lot of people who wanted to use web frameworks, uh, especially Rails-like, could have an easy switch at that point. And the early days were really uh, more competitive, I think, where Elixir was trying to actively gain users from the uh, Erlang ecosystem. And uh, initially, there was also a strong tendency to just wrap Erlang libraries into a thin Elixir shim that didn't even give credit uh, for most of these things. All of that has changed over time, and we're making big, big efforts to bridge the gap between the two communities. And that kind of attitude mostly doesn't exist anymore um, on either sides. And it kind of shifted around because I think Elixir now, in terms of sheer numbers of developers, is probably still larger than Erlang. Uh, as I said, a lot of them are probably web developers, which means uh, I don't see them as directly competing. Uh, but, you know, it kind of shifted upside down in terms that if I'm trying to uh, hire someone who is going to be working in infrastructure projects with me in Erlang, there's a good chance that I will look at people with Elixir knowledge to do it. And then Elixir has kind of turned out into a pipeline uh, into getting more Erlang people, for example. So, uh, yeah, it used to be extremely competitive. I think now we need to have this kind of a hand-in-hand approach uh, where the strength of both languages uh, and the other ones like FE and LFE can be used to grow the ecosystem as a whole. And that's part of uh, the uh, Airline Ecosystem Foundation, which we just started uh, a few ye- a few months ago for the legal stuff, and we announced the first time a few weeks ago. Uh, in, in terms of at least for the first year, getting up with uh, getting set up with working groups that will help uh, the ecosystem be a bit more unified into what we use. Like the build tools are different. We already share HexPM. Uh, we've just gained ways in Erlang to uh, use Elixir dependencies. Elixir already had that capability, 
but we're really, really looking in terms of making it a bit more interchangeable and people can use the language they want with the staff that they want, but use the benefits of all of the other parts of the ecosystem where everyone uses what they need. That's really great. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation and you're involved with that, is that right? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm on the board as one of the founding members uh, at this point. Uh, the company I work for, uh, Genetech, was part of the industrial airline user group, and we joined specifically to help the efforts of starting the foundation. So I was part of uh, the discussion, setting up the bylaws, setting up the initial working groups and all these procedures, which we are still uh, doing at this point in time. Mm -hmm. uh, because there is a lot of stuff, it turns out, that you need to specify. Uh, like, what is the responsibility of the working group? What do they need to have in terms of accountability, that kind of stuff? And uh, like it needs to be defined in order to function in the first place. And that's what we're all doing right then. It's interesting to do as a bunch of developers because a lot of it is just, you know, lawyering and rules and stuff like that that uh, not everyone in the group feels super comfortable with. Sure. Yeah, I imagine that's a, a big... It, it, what I love about it is it's a big goal, uh, but I also really like and appreciate everything you were describing about how the Erlang and Elixir ecosystems really have just kind of melded and, and that there really isn't much competition between them, that it's really a synergistic kind of a thing. And I'm, I'm so glad that that happened, that it worked Yeah, out I mean, well. the only part, it's, uh, the only place where it's annoying is on Stack Overflow because there's all these Elixir questions that are tagged Erlang and I can do nothing about that. Oh. <laughs> Everywhere else is kind of fine. All right. So public service announcement, don't tag your Elixir questions with Erlang. On Stack I know, unless it can be answered with both. But yeah, it's interesting to go into the Erlang section of Stack Overflow, which I almost never do anymore because Stack Overflow is not a community. It's just a Google sure. search thing now. Uh, but you go into that one and have the questions have to do with Phoenix, which cannot even be used from Erlang because of the a lot of macros they have in there. Mm. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about the libraries, the Elixir libraries that cannot be brought into Erlang just because yeah. of macros. Yeah, I mean, Phoenix uh, and uh, Ecto are the two big ones because they rely a whole lot on uh, the special constructs to work. But if you look at all the other libraries that use macros internally, uh, then usually it's entirely fine on the Erlang side because you have a programmatic API that you can just call directly and do the long way, but if you try to use Ecto, there is no documentation that tells you how to, you know, build a query without using the macros. The macros are the interface, and if you don't have the macros, then you don't have the interface. The rest is up to you, and it's not necessarily stable or anything like that. So those are parts where, uh, yeah, uh, it's going to be really, really hard to tie things together at that point. Um, but there are ways to work around it, possibly building mixed language projects and stuff like that uh, in the worst case. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, so maybe uh, it, I'm just, if you could share some kind of request uh, with, with the kind of Elixir community, um, is there anything in particular? I'm, I'm just kind of thinking like, hey, if you're building a library, don't make macros be the interface for it, or at least provide an alternative interface. Uh, yeah, I think that would be one core of them. Uh, one of the things that, you know, sometimes people ask me, like, what would you change in Elixir or something like that? I'd say I would undo most of the changes that made it not Erlang in the first place. <laughs> so my advice would probably be program more like Erlang, uh, which is not super constructive, but it tends to be that 
you know, uh, this is the same complaint I have with pipes that I have with a lot of features in Elixir is that a lot of them are features that make for nice looking code, uh, but often has this kind of imperative slant in it, uh, where you try to bring in something from the previous experiences and that if you do it in a declarative manner, the way you would do it in Erlang is just going to be a function with a data structure, mm -hmm. right? So the thing I would have done if I were to write Ecto in Erlang would have been a list of operations that can be scheduled however you want. So there could be, you know, a list with a tuple that's a select in there, one where there's a where clause, one there is a transform in that one. And then it's up to, uh, you know, the client-side query engine to figure out in which order they can be done on whatever database you have. And it turns out that you have this uh, data structure that can be manipulated as data instead of a sequence of macro calls. And the pipe is kind of like that at the same point where, uh, you know, if you're using something like a web server, you might have like a connection, you pipe add a header, you pipe add a header, you pipe add a request body, you pipe something like that. Um, I would have designed it to have just a list of headers and then just a content body and you put these in the function and you do not allow that kind of intermediary representation where you have a half complete connection that has some headers but not all of them and only part of a body or something like that. So for me, uh, the safe way to design these APIs is to make it declarative and function based in the first place which is kind of annoying because as you said, what would be my request to Elixir people doing that is it would be like, do not do the things that make Elixir Elixir. <laughs> so I'm still a bit of a curmudgeon at that point, but th those are the principles by which I stand. Well, that's interesting. I love hearing that perspective too. Um, Cause I do love declarative code where it, and it is, you know, it's not so much imperative. It's just like, I can see by pattern matching by all these different principles, like what is going to happen. And I don't have to try and mentally parse, oh, this is happening, then this is happening. Yeah. Right. And if we come back to uh, data structures and property-based testing, it is much easier to generate a data structure than it is to generate a sequence of function calls and mutable state, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that it eases code analysis, it eases testing methodologies, it eases documentation to have all that stuff as data structures as well, instead of uh, special constructs at the language level. So the thing I would say is probably that you want your API to feel usable and declarative before macros are applied. And then if you do want to provide the macros to look nice and feel nicer and feel, you know, more like uh, idiomatic elixir, then do it. Um, but you should have that declarative uh, underlying level of abstraction on which you build the rest that you have. Mm -hmm. I, I appreciate that too, because um, having come from the Rails background where uh, like monkey patching or like macros, that type of coding was like everywhere. It was what you do. And, mm -hmm. uh, and then just getting thinking at first how awesome it was and how much power there was. And well, look, I can just do this. And I've added a method to every object in the system, to every string. Right. And, and doing yeah. that, then you realize, oh my gosh, I, I have such a problem now. Uh, yeah, exactly. Especially if you start depending on it and then you need to change it. And then, yeah, you're, you're taking on the role of designing the standard library. And I think it's one of the things that Jose was repeating a lot early on in the uh, earliest days of Elixir, which is, I, you know, it, 
here's a feature, please don't use it until you really need what you, unless you really know what you're doing, but there's no way to know what you're, that, there's no way to know that you know what you're doing unless you've made <laughs> enough mistakes to know you shouldn't. Exactly. And that's yeah. always a problem. And uh, it's interesting because back then, one of my predictions was that the moment Elixir grows faster than, you know, Jose can keep things in check, it's going to be harder and harder to keep control over all of these contracts. That will be interesting to see how that, how that develops. Yeah. So coming back to property-based testing, um, if I'm wanting to get started uh, with this, as, as I've heard about it, I've seen conference talks, I've, you know, it's, I'm excited about it. How do I get started? Uh, that's, uh, yeah, that, that's always a kind of a bit of a tricky question. I mean, you buy the book, that's step one, uh, or you get the, you could just go see the free page, you download the tools. Uh, but a lot of it comes into a, uh, figuring out what you want to write the tests for first. Mm -hmm. And if you're doing unit tests with uh, TDD and stuff like that, you always start with the simplest component you can have and uh, you go at it. And with property-based testing, this is kind of really, really hard because you need to find a general rule. But if you have something so stupid, simple that the rule is the test itself, you cannot just do that. You're going to, actually, this is one of the hard parts of teaching property-based testing is that in all the books, you try to have the simplest code possible to demonstrate what you need, but that tends to mean that the test is more complex than the thing you're testing in all the tutorials that you write. <laughs> that so, is a challenge. Yeah, so the thing I would say is that you want to find something that is uh, you know, not trivial, but that you understand well, but has a significant complexity in its implementation. Uh, usually data structures are interesting for that, because if you're trying to do something like a hash map, a dictionary, or something on that matter, you have a very simple interface based on, you know, get, put, set, update is something in there. But the implementation details are where all the complexity lies. And that is easier to test with property-based testing. Mm -hmm. I would also say to start with a component or a bit of code that you know works right. Uh, because it's a new tool, which means that you are going to have to debug your understanding of the tool and the test that you write with it as well as the code. So if you know that the code is solid, then at the very least you can focus on making a bit good tests on that one. And then you break something in the system, you make sure that the tests are able to figure it out, and you gain that kind of little confidence into how you build your things uh, that then lets you level up to being in a place where you feel confident that you can write simple, simple properties that work fine, and then you can start testing code with it. Because the way it goes is that if you cannot trust yourself to write good properties, how can you trust yourself to write good code using these properties? That's always a kind of little tricky part. Mm. Uh, and this is going to be a bit time consuming. So the moment you feel comfortable with properties, uh, the thing that I've seen multiple teams do is to always start just with uh, testing the core components of their system where they do need that additional security. You know, that part of the code where you don't have the right to fail. This is what people will test first because usually uh, they will feel that it is worth their time to improve that section of the code. But if all you're doing is just, you know, testing a little thing that nobody cares about, but because it's a new tools, it takes you five times uh, as long as it would have otherwise, uh, then it's, it's always going to look like a failure, right? So it's about choosing the right places to apply it at first until it feels natural enough to apply it to more and more places. I think that's the best way to go about it. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, if I'm going to invest the, 
mental effort and time to learn a new tool. And like, I want to apply it to that area that probably already has a lot of good unit test coverage where I understand how well it works. Like, like what you're talking about, that those core components. Right. And, and then, and then I'm able to, you know, say, I, I, yeah, I can't let this part of my system fail. If it does, then my whole business purpose is like failing. So right. that's, that's where I get the most value out of it, at least initially, right? Right. But it's also the part where, you know, financially speaking, if you're working on a team with a project, that's where uh, having a false start and losing time in something that does not necessarily have a lot of benefits is not going to be seen extremely negatively within the organization. If you're doing it the first time in a brand new project uh, that is going to be only of marginal benefit, then any overhead you have in writing these tests is going to be under a lot larger scrutiny than if you're just going like, I'm trying this to see if we can find bugs we haven't found before, which if you don't find a bug, everyone is happy. If you find bugs, everyone is happy. <laughs> I like that. I don't know if you're like me, but when I have a new idea, I probably spend an hour looking for a domain that communicates the right thing to the right people so that they know what I'm about. And that's why I picked up as a sponsor the .tech domains, and you should definitely check them out. There's never been a domain that's helped represent the tech community so well. And getting a domain that's relevant to your brand, that helps encapsulate the ethos of what you're doing is just, it's hard. And the .coms a lot of times are taken up, and so having a .tech is really, really awesome. Now, I have actually picked up devchat.tech. Um, we have a lot of SEO behind devchat.tv, so it probably won't switch, but I wanted that out there so that people can pick it up and know that devchat is about tech. And, and I just, I love the idea. So using a .tech domain was an awesome solution for us. It's short, it's relevant to what we do, and it just sticks in people's head. It's a natural fit for anything technology. So if you're a programmer, if you're working on a tech startup or an open source library or things like that, it's definitely a great way to go. In fact, a lot of other companies have actually been moving over to .tech. So CES, which is a conference that I go to every year and uh, go check out all the new technology. They switched over to CES.tech from CESweb.org. Uh, Viacom has Viacom.tech to host their tech division. Intel chose Insight.tech for their latest initiative. And startups on a tech domain have raised more than a billion dollars on a .tech domain. So if you want your own .tech domain, go to go.tech slash elixir and use the coupon code elixir.tech and get a one-year tech domain at $9.99 and a five-year .tech domain at $49.99. Now, if you use this coupon code to get a .tech domain, tweet at me at cmaxw and let me know what .tech domain you got so that I can shout it out on Twitter. Uh, I'd really love to see what you're doing with this and... I think it's just a great product. So go check it out at go.tech slash elixir and get this deal today. Another question I had that's just kind of, in, uh, I'm just kind of interested to find out uh, what other types of things you're interested in. It sounds like you've been doing property-based testing for several years. Um, are there other kinds of things that, that you're kind of like playing with, experimenting with, uh, that we might actually see or hear more about in the future? Uh, so recently the thing that has been, uh, holding a lot of my attention is related to, uh, resilience engineering, which is interesting because it's not purely at a technical level. A lot of it is, uh, touching at the organizational level 
and uh, questions about how do you build a team that is flexible to handling new issues that they have never seen before and cannot be predicted. So this is interesting because for me, that's kind of the next level. And uh, I, I've been playing in uh, my latest presentations and latest blog posts, which uh, I'll add links uh, for this, um, about the idea of operator experience. How do you write software and tools that are uh, usable for expert operators that are trying to debug what is going on in there. And so I don't necessarily have like, this is a tool that you can use directly. And a lot of it is a bit, is a bit more about how you should be structuring things in order to have you know, good observable software and stuff like that. And that's what I'm trying to think about right now. Uh, and I've been focusing a bit as well on uh, you know, different ways to approach uh, building airline systems and whatnot. I have uh, these presentations and blog posts about how to structure a supervision tree properly and everything like that, that I think are kind of uh, still often very much uh, tribal knowledge and ingrained knowledge that you have and you accumulate in years, but that nobody necessarily expresses explicitly and mm -hmm. trying to surface that kind of stuff. So that, that's a bit what I'm playing with these days and possibly uh, non-code related things. Yeah, I was watching one of your uh, recent presentations. It was uh, from, I guess it was March. Yeah, 22nd, so just uh, recent uh, from Codebeam, uh, Operable yep. Erlang and Elixir. Exactly, yes. And I, I think that got the sense that that's what you're talking about, right? The resilience and engineering. Right, yeah, a lot of the stuff in that presentation are a little glimpse into what resilience engineering talks about and how we can apply it on the software level. Because I think that resilience engineering, uh, while it cares a lot about engineers, cares a lot about organizations as a whole, uh, I feel a lot more comfortable as an amateur in these disciplines uh, talking to developers directly because, well, I don't have the same experience that the professionals of resilience engineering do, but I find the information very interesting to apply in my day-to-day. -day. Mm -hmm. So this idea about how people form mental models, how they apply them, and how can we build tooling that caters uh, to that need uh, is super interesting to me. So one of the things you mentioned is that you work for uh, Heroku. Um, I've, uh, as a user of like Ruby and Rails, Heroku first became very kind of prominent uh, in the, the Rails community because it was a very easy deploy. And reading about like some, like uh, your work with um, Erlang and Anger was the first time I realized, oh, that there was some Erlang going on behind Heroku. I'd just love to hear anything about how, how that came about, what that was like. So I joined and the components were already in place. Mm. Uh, the two big ones were the, or are still, at least uh, the router on the shared platform and the logging uh, router on the back end. Uh, I don't know if they still use a login, the, the logging router in there. The HTTP router and proxy is still in place, uh, even though I think it's getting phased out at this point because uh, for various reasons, internal politics, uh, it, it came out that way. And a lot of our line people just left Heroku over time and then it started making more and more sense to uh, replace it. Mm. Uh, I'm not going to get into the internals and politics of the company, Sure. Uh, but yes, it, it's been in there for years and years and years, and it's been doing a surprising amount of work there. Without giving any figures, uh, I think the SSL layer that we deployed 
while we while I was still working there, uh, based on the airline TLS libraries with a few patches that were contributed upstream and everything, uh, we're having performances that were on par with what the uh, AWS ELB team were able to do in C++ directly. Mm. I think we had on average a few milliseconds slower on the median time, but if you look at the 99th percentile under heavy loads, uh, the airline front end would do something in the worst case, like nine to 12 seconds, which is very bad. But the ELBs under the same benchmark would give us something like four minutes, 57 seconds or something. Wow. So um, in terms of 99 percentile, what we had found back then is that it was definitely worth it to uh, move a lot of our TLS termination to Erlang instead of keeping it on all these ELBs that we had instead. Uh, so yeah, it, it's been doing a great, great job and, uh, the systems that were running back then are still running now with, uh, what I think is very limited maintenance costs. And I think for the volume, it was kind of amazing the kind of work we could do with, a you know, a skeleton crew of two to four people, uh, handling their requests for, I don't know how many applications were back then, like between 200,000 and 500,000 applications. Wow. So yeah, that, that was pretty impressive in terms of how much we could do with very few engineers. I, I think that that idea of being able to do a lot with very few engineers is, you know, like that was certainly part of the discussion around WhatsApp, you know, that they create this company, it's written in Erlang and the backend core engineers are like maybe, I don't know, what was it 12 or 13 people? And yeah, I think uh, at some point they had something like below, be, uh, under 30 engineers for a billion users. Yeah, that, that is insane. It is. Uh, one of the interesting parts, though, is that, you know, Erlang is kind of that common point where you have a lot of, uh, uh, you know, good engineers doing uh, amazing heavy lifting, but it, it's not the secret sauce on its own, right? It has mm -hmm. to be the team that you build around it. You cannot just take um, a bunch of random developers who have never built a backend before, tell them to do it in Erlang, and then they're going to get the same results. No, that's like, absolutely true. Yeah, the, the people at WhatsApp have been doing some amazing hacks and patches to the Erlang virtual machine and have structured their systems in such a way that they could scale it with the number of people they had. Uh, the stuff that we did at Heroku was probably a bit more ad hoc and we didn't have as many users either. Uh, but really, it, it's, it's not like, you know, that kind of myth that you take your application, you write it that way, you deploy it and it scales magically is never true. Any tool you have in any runtime environment in any language in any operating system you have, once you get to a high enough scale, you have to have a bunch of people willing to go in there, dig into it, profile a bunch of stuff, and tweak it in ways that you didn't know were even possible to get what you need out of there. If this is something you are not ready to do, you are not going to scale up, at least on the technical level, uh, to the extent of any technology. There's always a kind of boundary that you didn't know exists. And you're going to have to push it at some point. Now, I imagine that is exactly the case. And, it, and I imagine it's that kind of thing that was those scripts that was Erlang and Anger, right? It's like, okay, these are all the little things we have to find out. Oh, we now have a bottleneck over here once our traffic reached this level. So we have to address that. And then once you resolve that, then it kind of moves downstream. And oh, now we have a bottleneck here. Right, exactly. And if you're doing it, the usual way in a platform that does not let you debug it in production, uh, you're kind of stuck doing it either uh, with a debugger and, uh, or print statement debugging, 
or if you still want to do it in production, it's going to be through logs or, uh, you know, operating system tracing. But very few languages do give you the kind of introspection you can have on Erlang and Elixir uh, of just interacting with the virtual machine, looking at the code and poking at it uh, very interactively to find the problems that you have. And in some cases, this could save like weeks of development uh, just to figure something out because just a pattern of going, uh, I need to have a log on this to see if it's the problem. And then you find out it's not the problem. So you need a different log in a different place. And just doing a bunch of deployments there, waiting for the rare events and everything like that could take three weeks. Uh, but if you're using tracing with uh, Recon Trace, Redbug, or something like that, you can get the same information in a half an hour instead of three weeks. Like that's freaking huge in terms of figuring out why something is behaving funny. Yeah. So uh, have you ever used, or, or is it a bad idea to try and attach like observer to something that I have running, like, you know, like SSH port forwarding or something? Is that a bad idea? I don't know. I just have not run observer in there. I used to work a lot with, uh, you know, a, a cluster of servers that could be anywhere between 25 and 300 nodes. Wow. Uh, not necessarily all communicating together. They don't have, mm -hmm. uh, that stuff directly. If you want to do an SSH tunnel, you have to go through a uh, reinforced bastion instance or a VPN or something like that. So yeah. at some point, it's just easier to run it directly in the shell and be able to use RPC to run it on multiple nodes at the same time. Like if mm -hmm. I'm trying to get diagnostics out of 75 nodes, I'm not going to connect 75 GUIs on it. I'm just no. going to submit one comment and then apply it on all the servers and look at the data later and treat them as numbers. Yeah. That's so awesome. for a lot of them, it's a, it, it's a bit of laziness, right? I don't need to have all the libraries installed, all that stuff. I, I just run it in the shell and get what I need. Mm -hmm. The biggest thing is not just to get what is in there, uh, but tricky problems always require you to figure things out outside of what you have currently available and observable. So Observer gives you quick information for an easy diagnostic. Uh, but when you figure out like, oh, is the problem in this part of the system or this other part, you might have to start digging with both knowledge of the virtual machine and knowledge of your application. And that gets to be harder and harder to do with just the generic tools. And you start needing to build your own scripts and your own little things to dig into areas where problems usually are located. And that kind of expertise, uh, yeah, uh, I think that you know, scripts and stuff without an interface is more composable and extendable than a graphic interface for that. Yeah. And then you, you might want to pipe all of that out to a dashboard somewhere or something. Uh, but yeah, I find it easier to export all the metrics that Observer would report mm -hmm. to the same dashboard everyone else uses than having everyone know how to do an SSH tunnel for production instance just to run a GUI. That totally makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the big things that surprised me when Elixir started a bit more because Erlang folks knew about Observer all that time but never really advertised it because few people use it in production. Mm -hmm. But all the folks doing Elixir is like, Observer is amazing. Look at Observer. And they would pay a screenshot of it. And Observer is great. It's like we knew about it. And nobody cared all that hard compared to what happened in Elixir. But I think that's part of, uh, you know, the place where they are being deployed and that thing about not working necessarily in the same parts of the industry. Because of course, if you're doing something like nerves and you have one device, then it's going to be entirely fantastic to be able to log over to it and debug it from what you have. 
But if what you have is 150 servers or you have 3,000 of them, it's not going to be workable. And so the approach to the same tool on the same platform is not going to be the same based on the context. So I wanted to come back to uh, one, one of the points you made was talking about, um, like, talking about the WhatsApp engineers and how you can't just take you know, uh, an, an engineer and say, hey, write this incredible scaling system in Erlang or Elixir and expect them to be able to do it. Because uh, one of the things I just want to point out is how, you know, what I'm, I, I talk a lot with people who are new, kind of coming to Elixir and the Beam, and they are having, you know, the, the idea of they're, they're new to all of these concepts. But I guess my point that I wanted to make was that um, there's a lot of fundamental primitives that are built into the Beam that, you know, are super powerful. And these things are enable us to, you know, monitor processes on other nodes even, and to uh, link processes. So if one dies, it, it, it causes the other to die and, you know, in a desirable way. And so like all of those things, it's like, yeah, you have to actually understand these primitives to really build something that scales like that. Right. And not only that, but understanding the primitives is not going to be going to be enough on its own either. Right. Mm -hmm. You have to have a kind of way to structure the system and understanding the tools and everything. So you kind of need that kind of little perfect storm to do it. And if you cannot find it all within a single engineer, then you need to have a diverse team of engineers that are able to communicate these things with each other to be able to work through it, essentially. Uh, but yeah, that, that, that's the part where there's just no good, easy solution. Part of it is training, part of it is having the experience, part of it is having a uh, good enough tech stack because it would be harder to do something like WhatsApp on Ruby than it would be on airline. Like nobody would deny that. It, they're, they're, they just don't have the same runtime environments and properties from that point of view. Uh, but yeah, uh, someone said at some point that I would trust an experienced engineer with only operating system debugging tools to figure out the problem faster than an expert in a language with their language tools. And that might be true in a lot of cases. Like experience is hard to replace with more tech. Well, is there anything else you'd like to talk about uh, before we close up and go to picks? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think that covers a lot of it, uh, actually, yeah. Yeah, well, that has been, uh, we will have a lot of uh, links in the show notes. And, uh, but yeah, first let's uh, go to picks. All right. Uh, I only have one pick today that I kind of found out about accidentally over on Twitter. It's um, Hill Wayne work, uh, posted about something called metamorphic testing, which is an approach uh, that is relevant when writing properties and stuff like that. About, you know, a lot of properties are made with oracles where you know the answer to the kind of thing that you're building, but sometimes you don't. And the example he gives is trying to figure out, you know, text to speech. Uh, but in all kinds of weird conditions. So you could, the, the, one of the ways the approach works is that you take the clean speech that you have, but then you add filters on top of it, like rain noise, traffic noises, people speaking over it, and make sure that you always get the same result. So you don't need to have the right solution. Uh, you don't need to have the answer to the solution all the time. You just need to have all the answers that always agree with each other to know that you are able to handle varying degrees of quality in what you have. And I found this approach super interesting because in terms of property-based testing, when we do stateful testing, um, there's really, really interesting stuff that you do when you start to do fault injection, right? 
And the thing that you can do is that you generate that sequence of comments that are going to be uh, run this operation, run this other operation, check that the values are fine. And then you add noise to them by essentially peppering them with all kinds of failures and making sure that things still work even though you have these failures. And so I find that the metamorphic testing that Hill Wayne introduces there ties super interestingly into fault injection and stateful property-based testing. So that's my pick for today. And I've spoken long enough about it that it's going to be my only pick for today. Well, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, and uh, I was just gonna share one that I think uh, we can apply kind of to this idea that you're introducing to property testing, which is just the idea that was, was put forward by Dave Brailsford. He was the, um, the head coach of, I think it was Great Britain's uh, bicycle team uh, for the Olympics. And his whole principle was getting 1% better. And it, he just took the idea, like if you took the whole principle that came from the idea of, uh, if you broke down everything you could think of that goes into riding a bike and then improved it by 1%, you'll get a significant increase when you put them all back together. And I thought, wow, you know, if you apply that to programming, there's a lot of different aspects that that could apply to, like it could be mental focus, it could be the keyboard that I choose to use, the tooling that I choose to use, uh, any practices that I might help to avoid common mistakes, how I might plan, how I might actually need to think about my healthy eating and exercise so that, and my sleeping so I can have uh, focus and you know alert kind of behavior. And just like all the little things that I, like, I don't have to start doing everything awesome right now, I don't have to buy the best a keyboard that I could possibly buy. I just need to have um, getting 1% better. Like what could I do that's just a little bit better? It's kind of the opposite of the death by a thousand cut, right? It's a success by a thousand little things. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Fred. And I would love uh, if people would like to get in touch with you or follow you or anything like that, where should they go? Uh, my Twitter account is the easiest one. Otherwise, I'm hanging on both the Erlang and Slack. Uh, uh, otherwise, I'm hanging on both the Erlang and Elixir Slacks, also on IRC for both principal channels on these on Freenode as well. I'm on Elixir Forum. Uh, I'm also on the Erlang mailing lists. And my email is peppered a bit everywhere on my website, I think, mostly in the footers. Uh, but I'm easy to reach in general. Awesome. Well, it was a pleasure talking with you. And uh, that's it for today. We hope you'll join us next week on Elixir Mix. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.